You're listening to Sunday Sermons from Christ Pacific Church located in Huntington Beach, California. We're cultivating a community of faith, hope, and love that follows Jesus into the world. Let's join Peter Little as we continue through our series, A New Humanity, through Matthew 5, 17 through 20, 27 through 30. Good morning. Um, today I'll be reading uh, the scripture. Um, today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20 and 27 through 30. So please turn there in your Bibles or follow along in the screen. Again, that's Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20 and 27 through 30. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then skipping down to verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone that looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members for the, than for your whole body to go into hell. This is God's word for us. I think I heard somebody say, oh, wow. <laughs> That's how I feel too. Um, okay, uh, up front here, today's sermon might be a little bit long. There is a lot to say. And uh, this is really important stuff, and also, obviously, it's a bit tender, right? Uh, it's a bit difficult, uh, which is why I think it's important to uh, start this morning with a little bit of lightheartedness and uh, introduce to you um, our new dog. Yeah, so, right? Look at how amazing she is. So this is Ebony, and... Um, Ebony is a six-month-old German shepherd something, something, something mutt uh, that we rescued and full of life and energy and, uh, and just beautiful and a huge, uh, a huge blessing uh, to Krista and me so far. So um, we've been talking about adopting a dog for, I don't know, a couple years, and we finally made it happen. It's a big commitment, you know, 15 years, something like that. And uh, we don't have children, so we've, we've been free to basically do whatever we want, whenever we want. And um, that just changed. So anyway, uh, this, is, this is Ebony, so I, I thought I'd uh, at least um, begin this morning by having us all smile, because who doesn't love dogs, right? I mean, maybe some of you don't, but it's hard for me to imagine how that would be possible. Uh, okay. Yeah, okay, great. So Jesus says, I have come not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill. So Jesus is drawing out the deeper intent of the seventh commandment. 
you shall not commit adultery. He's resurrecting the original intent of that command, filling it with the full meaning God originally intended it to have when he first gave it. In that seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, the Lord is protecting the sacred covenant of marriage. In that seventh commandment, the Lord is protecting the character and the dignity of married women and men and unmarried women and men. And if you do the math, that's everybody. And as we dive into this text, it's important that we get started on the right foot. And that is this. The living God is not a prude. The living God in Jesus Christ here in these verses is a protector. That is at the heart of what this is about. Jesus is saying these things because he is, at the end of the day, a protector. He wants to protect you. He wants to protect me. He is so good. Jesus is so good. So once again... As I mentioned last week, once again, the scribes and the Pharisees, the doctors of the law, the, uh, the religious leaders, the kind of publicly pious people, they felt like they were faithfully living out the seventh commandment as long as they weren't having sex outside of the boundaries of marriage. But they had lost sight of the original intent of the commandment, which certainly includes the prohibition of sex outside of marriage, but it includes so much more than that. Jesus here is filling full the intent of the commandment. So how does he do that? How does Jesus fulfill the law? How does he fill it full of its original meaning? What does he mean here when he speaks about adultery in the Sermon on the Mount? Let me begin with three qualifications. I want to qualify a few things so that we can better understand and better hear what it is that Jesus is saying. So three qualifications. The first is that although Jesus um, specifically addresses married men in this verse... The words that Jesus uses also apply to unmarried men and to married and unmarried women. In other words, these words apply to everybody. Jesus' concern here is not limited to the eyes of men and the bodies of women. Certainly it includes that, but it is not limited to that. Jesus' audience is anyone who would violate the sacred covenant of marriage. So that means that Jesus' concern here is for both the one who looks and also for the one who intentionally draws the look, who does everything in his or her power to awaken desire in the other person to whom he or she is not married. Right, so Jesus' desire is to protect the sacred covenant and gift of marriage. And he's speaking to all of us. That's the first 
qualification. The second qualification is that although this text is really hard-hitting, right? I mean, it, it comes across harsh. Jesus is not saying these things to condemn us or to rob us of the joy of living. Jesus is not saying these things to condemn us or to rob us of the joy of living. It would be really easy for those of us who have been repeated offenders of this kind of adultery to resign ourselves to condemnation and say, yes, I have entertained lustful thoughts and images, and so I stand condemned. But condemnation is not Jesus' goal. It's not his desire. His desire is to heal us, restore us, protect us, and to ensure authentic relationships and to enjoy the joy of sexual intimacy the way that God gifted it to us. You see, Jesus is so good. He's so good. It would be easy to conclude that Jesus is kind of a killjoy here. You know, a party pooper, a a stingy prude, if you will. But Jesus didn't come to rob us of the joy of sex or to stomp out our pleasure or to abolish our needs and our drives. Needs and drives, by the way, that Jesus intended to give us and did give us. No, Jesus preaches these words to protect the gift of sex so that it can be enjoyed in its fullness. I think we could even say that Jesus didn't come to take sex away, but to give us better sex. You can tell your friends that. It's what you heard at church this morning. (laughs) So the renowned New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, he uh, writes this in his For Everyone commentary series. He says, "Uh, this is not repression, as people sometimes suggest. It's more like the pruning of a rose, cutting off some healthy buds so that the plant may grow stronger and produce better flowers. Choosing not to be swept along by inappropriate sexual passion may well feel on occasion like cutting off a hand or plucking out an eye. And our world has frequently tried to tell us that doing this is very bad for us. But for neither the first nor the last time, we must choose to obey our Lord rather than the world. The great missionary to India, E. Stanley Jones, he writes in his book, Christ of the Mount. That's his book on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, uh, Jesus is not being ascetic. He's being aseptic. Jesus is not being ascetic. He's being aseptic. To be ascetic is to abstain from any and all forms of indulgence and pleasure. So, for example, many of the early uh, monastics were called uh, desert fathers. Most of them were men because they literally moved out into the desert in the middle of nowhere and deprived themselves of all pleasures. They were ascetics. Jesus is not being an ascetic here. He's not trying to deprive us of all pleasure. No, he's being aseptic. He's treating infection. He's showing us the importance of eliminating lust and therefore fulfilling the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. So just like an effective ascetic treatment 
prevents bacteria, prevents viruses and other harmful microorganisms that can lead to disease and infection. In the same way, Jesus here is trying to help us prevent the lust bacteria from blooming into a full-blown infection. He's being aseptic. When I was a little boy, I've told this story before, uh, I fell off a scaffolding and I tore open uh, the back of my hamstring. I still have a giant scar there from it. And when my mom put hydrogen peroxide on the wound, I thought she was trying to kill me. And when I was in the emergency room and the medical professionals were using tweezers to pick out the gravel and the sand from this giant wound, I thought that they were trying to torment me. But neither my mom nor these medical professionals were trying to hurt me. They were doing what was needed, doing what was best for me, even though in the moment it was painful. They were trying to protect me from further harm, from infection. And so also Jesus' command here. He speaks to heal us, to restore us, to protect us. Isn't he good? Jesus is so good. Okay, the third qualification. Sex is a God-given gift to be enjoyed within the boundaries of marriage. Our bodies, our desire for sexual intimacy, the enjoyment of sex within marriage, these are all gifts from God. And the church at times, not necessarily Christ-specific church, but capital C, the church at times, and in some traditions have led us to believe that sex is at best embarrassing and at worst shameful. That sex is merely something that is necessary for procreation, but that's about it. But this is not a biblical view of sex. If you've ever read through the Old Testament book Song of Solomon, you would agree with John Stott, who observes this. He says, there's no Victorian prudery there, but rather the uninhibited delight of lovers of bride and bridegroom in and with each other. Sex is a gift given to us from God. So, now that we've qualified a few things, I think we're better prepared to hear what it is that Jesus is trying to say to us. And in order to help us better understand what it is that Jesus is trying to say to us, I want to highlight three words that Jesus uses. Three Greek words. You don't remember, need to remember these three Greek words, but they're kind of fun to say. So I'll say them. Blepo, epithumeo, and scandalizo. Okay? Yeah, right. First one, blepo. This is the Greek verb which means keep on looking. Jesus says everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Literally, it is the one who keeps on looking at a woman in order to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, that word that is translated as look in our English Bibles, it's that Greek word blepo, and it's a participle. It's a present participle, which means it refers to ongoing action. Anyone who continues to look... This is not about an appreciative glance at a beautiful person. Looking at a beautiful person is actually a drive given in creation. Jesus is not addressing an appreciative glance or look at a beautiful person. 
He's addressing the choice to keep on looking. If you were here last week, then you remember Jesus said some similar things about anger. Jesus said, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister is liable to judgment. And just as Jesus there was not referring to a moment of, of experiencing anger, but rather he was referring to someone who continues to choose to be and, and to, um, to hold on to anger. So also Jesus here is addressing someone who continues to look. Someone who keeps on looking in order to lust. And that leads us to the second word. It's the word epithumeo. It's translated in most of our English Bibles as the word lust. It's commonly used in reference to sexual desires. But it gets beneath the surface of only a desire for sex. Epithumeo, at its most fundamental level, is a desire to possess. A desire to possess. The Tenth Commandment, states that you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or anything else. When the 10th commandment was translated from its original Hebrew into Greek, the Greek word that was used to translate that word covet is this Greek word epithumeo, because it gets at the heart of the matter, coveting, desiring to possess for oneself, desiring something or someone that does not belong to you. You see, the problem with lust is that it must have its object if only for a moment. Appreciation can rejoice and celebrate in beauty. Lust must possess the other for itself. So, Ebony. Ebony has a problem with lusting after her food. Okay, it is literally impossible for her to appreciate her food. She must have it for herself right now. Okay, so the main motivation behind lust is to feel better fast, which means capturing the object of your lust. Lust is fundamentally selfish, it's narcissistic, it's egocentric, because it has no regard for anyone other than yourself. Lust is all about me. And the kingdom life that Jesus came to give is never just all about me. The kingdom life that Jesus came to give is never all about you. Now, lustful thoughts, they come haphazardly, kind of whether we like it or not. I was listening to one sermon on this topic and the preacher said, right? I mean, don't leave me hanging out here all by myself, right? I mean, lustful thoughts just come and, and there's like nothing we can do about it sometimes, right? Am I the only one? <laughs> they come and we kind of can't help it, but we do not have to invite those thoughts to stay. I think it was the 16th century reformer Martin Luther who clearly had battles of his own with lust, by the way. He said, I cannot keep a bird from flying over my head, but I can keep it from nesting in my hair. <laughs> How do we keep a bird from, from nesting in our hair? And that 
leads us to this third word, scandalizo, which is the Greek word that is translated as causes you to sin. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, scandalizo, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. This word, scandalizo, it's a verb, and the noun form of this verb stands for um, a bait stick. A bait stick in a trap. This stick that when it's tripped causes the boulder here to fall and not just capture the animal in this, uh, in this illustration, but to kill it. This bait stick here that is precariously holding up this stone is a, scandalite, is a scandalon. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Jesus speaks in hyperbole here to make a point. Now, the reason I know that Jesus doesn't mean for us to actually gouge out our eyes and cut off our hands, the reason I know that Jesus doesn't mean for us actually to do that is that we are very capable of lusting without eyes. Gouging out our eyes does not actually address the problem. So this is how I know he's not telling us to rip out our eyes or cut off our hands. But Jesus speaks so bluntly here and so radically because in adultery, the whole person is at stake. Right? We say that, um, that sin is sin, you know, whether it feels big to us or small to us. And that's true. Sin is sin. A lie is a lie, whether it's a big lie or a little lie. But the sin of adultery strikes at the core of our being because sex, the way that God designed it, involves the whole person, physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally. This is why, by the way, casual sex is a misnomer. There's no such thing as casual sex. Sex affects everything. Adultery affects the whole person, and it strikes at the core of who we are. This is why Jesus speaks so intensely about this. My preaching mentor, Daryl Johnson, he says this, You do not treat cancer with an aspirin. You cannot treat lust with a half-hearted commitment. We've got to be serious about this. We must address this lust virus head on. So to paraphrase Jesus, it's better to be prude than to be thrown into the eternal fire. Does watching that Netflix show lead you down a pathway towards lust? Cut it out of your life. Does going to that establishment expose you to lustful desires? Stop going there. Those novels? Stop reading them. Why would you play right nearby this bait stick when you know that so easily it can be tripped and you can become ensnared in this trap. Just go play somewhere else. Don't play near this bait stick. Cut out the bait sticks from your life. Again, Jesus here is not being prude. He's being a protector and he's so good. Jesus is protecting at least three things in this command, and I've hinted at these so far, but just uh, quickly want to walk through these. Jesus is protecting the sacred covenant of marriage. 
When we don't allow lustful images and drives to simply fly by like a bird, but rather invite them to make a nest in our hair, when we do that, we become preoccupied with what we need and what we want. I become preoccupied with what I need and what I want. We become self-absorbed, which is, by the way, a quick and easy recipe for a miserable and failed marriage. When it becomes all about me and what I need and what I want and my drives and my desires, that's a quick and miserable, that's a quick and easy recipe for a failed marriage. Jesus wants to protect marriage so that you can enjoy it. And he tells us how, at least one of the ways how in this command. So first of all, Jesus is protecting the sacred covenant of marriage. He's also protecting the dignity of the one being looked at. Lust dehumanizes. And if you've been the object of this, you know, and it is not a good feeling. When we look lustfully at another, the other is no longer seen as a wonderful being created in God's image, but rather as simply an object. A thing. Daryl Johnson, again, she becomes merely the kindling for the fire of my desire. Jesus loves us too much to let us become a thing, an object. He loves us too much to let us make other people into objects or things. And this is why Jesus, I think, would be so... No, this is why Jesus is so offended by so much advertising today. The marketing industry treats us like animals in heat. And that offends Jesus. And it probably should offend you too. It ought to offend you when a lovely woman is being exploited to meet someone else's business needs. You see, Jesus says these angular words, these difficult things about adultery, in order to protect the one being looked at, his precious daughter or son. Jesus also is protecting the character of the looker. The character of the looker. As I said at the beginning, Jesus is not here condemning us or trying to rob us of the joy of life. Jesus is trying to protect those who would keep on looking in order to lust. He wants the best for you. For you to lead a flourishing life with him. You have to believe that. That Jesus wants to protect the looker here. He wants to protect your character and he wants to prevent you from damaging yourself. Now, we can't talk about lust, I don't think, without addressing pornography. I don't have time this morning to talk a lot about this issue, the issue of pornography. But let me simply say this, perhaps especially to you men. Jesus' desire here is to protect you from the damage pornography will do to your soul and to your relationships. He wants what's best for you. He wants you to flourish. And if pornography is something that you struggle with, then you need to hear this. You need to hear this. Jesus did not say these things in order to condemn you. He said them to set you free. You have to believe that. And the first step in freedom is to reach out for help. 
And let me be maybe the first to say, at least today, there's no shame in saying, I want help. I need help. There's no shame in that. In fact, I think there's 99% courage and 1% humility in saying, hey, I need, I need some help here. And that leads me to uh, just two simple coping mechanisms, for a lack of a uh, better word here. Two coping mechanisms, ways to choose the radical way of faithfulness that Jesus desires for us, especially when it comes to fulfilling this commandment. So first of all, the kingdom life that Jesus came to give us is not a solitary life, but a life in community. Celebrate Recovery is a Christ-centered 12-step program that is one of the finest spiritual formation programs of our day. Everybody in Celebrate Recovery has a buddy, a sponsor, a community. So when tempted, he or she can simply pick up the phone and get some help and get some support. Find somebody you trust. Somebody to walk with you in this. You can find that person and you can find that community every Friday night right here. There are other places to find those people and to find that kind of community as well. But if you don't know where to look, Friday nights right here in this room is a great place to start. This is where a community of disciples are together working towards freedom from life's habits, hurts, and hang-ups, whatever they may be. Kingdom life is not a solitary life. It's a life meant to be lived in community. And one of the most courageous things you can say is, I need help. Will you help me? Second coping mechanism. Recognize the deeper longings. Lust is the twisting of, of the longing to feel alive. The longing to feel intimacy, the longing to be held, the longing for beauty. Lust is holy longings that have gone off in the wrong direction. Lingering lust is a signal that I have not been listening to these deeper longings. These good longings that God gave me. Longings to feel alive and to feel intimacy and to be held and to experience and see beauty. So when lust grabs a hold, rather than beat yourself up, recognize the deeper longings. Ask yourself, what do I really want? What is going on here? What's underneath the surface? And since these deeper longings can only really ultimately be fulfilled by the living God, lust is symptomatic of drifting from intimacy with God. Lust is a sign that we are drifting away from intimacy with God. So when you begin to see signs of lust, when you experience lustful thoughts or images or whatever, when you begin to see these things, turn like the younger son did and head back home and experience the open arms and embrace and welcome of the prodigal father. That's the invitation. 
go home to the Father who will welcome you home with open arms. You see, the younger son recognized that his passions and desires, which, which he went off into the far country in order to, uh, to attempt to fulfill in all sorts of ways, the younger son discovered that all of that wild living, all of that sex, all of that whatever it was, all of that stuff never met his needs. And what the younger son discovered was that what he had really been after the whole time was the love and acceptance and embrace of his father. And that's what he got when he simply decided to go home. So friends, this is at the heart of Jesus, the protector. He's so good. He's saying to us, come home. I will meet your needs. I will fulfill your deepest longings. For it's my desire to protect you. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so good. You are so merciful. You know us so well. You know us to the depths of our being. And and the fact that you still love us is astounding to me. That you know all of the deepest and darkest parts of my soul. And you still choose to love me. This is astounding. This is why I love you, Jesus. This is why we worship you today. For you are good. You are faithful. You are merciful. You are compassionate. Jesus, for those here today who are experiencing open wounds with this topic, for those who are perhaps feeling tinges of shame or regret or guilt, Jesus, would you enter into that shame? Would you enter into that guilt? Would you enter into that regret? And would you set your people free? Set us free that we might live for you. Grant us the desires of our heart, the desire to experience real intimacy, authentic intimacy, first and foremost with you, our creator and redeemer, and then also real and authentic and appropriate intimacy with our brothers and sisters and the community in which we live. Jesus, thank you that you love us. Tend to our hearts, tend to our souls, tend to our bodies. We offer them to you the great physician. Jesus, as we continue to worship, feed us, meet us, free us. Thank you for being so awesome, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people say, Amen. 
Thank you for joining us. For more information about Christ Pacific Church, visit our website at www.cpchb.org and follow us on social media at Christ Pacific Church.